0: It's Andy's Podcaster Podcasting Podcast. Episode 37.
1: Hello from La Jolla. Ah, hear that? Got a garbage truck in the alley again i know i know i don't go for a high studio sound quality i do prefer the real um i know sometimes it works better than others but uh, you know garbage trucks around here uh, It really feels like they're coming by every few hours. There's a restaurant on the ground floor of the building. Sammy's Wood Fired Pizza. And I guess the HOA makes them empty the trash. Almost constantly. (laughs) It's not even like it's a super busy restaurant, really. Um, There's so much good competition close by. But, you know, it's... It's pretty good, especially happy hour. You get a half off a lot of their menu from three till six, sort of the elderly blue plate special times. They've got these crisp roasted Brussels sprouts um, with some kind of shaved cheese and walnuts. Totally delicious. If you do end up in there, uh, just a warning, if you do go during these early eating hours for the blue plate special, This being La Jolla, the Millionaire's Playground, you uh, might end up eating uh, close to old people who've had extreme plastic surgery.
2: Daddy, daddy.
1: Just a minute. Let's get the uh, cheese pizza with pepperoni on the side, short rib tacos, and uh, two orders of Brussels sprouts.
2: Daddy what? Are they wearing masks?
1: No, stop staring.
2: <laughs> but are they?
1: No, they're not. Please, stop staring. Very rude.
2: <gasps> stop acting like an adult.
1: Stop it, the pair of you, we'll go upstairs and eat quiche.
2: But are they masks? No,
1: no, they're not. Can you just, can you just keep your voice down?
2: They probably got burned or
1: something. No, it's not. It's not that. Look, it's plastic surgery. They've made a choice. It's an operation they've had to stretch and inflate their skin so that they try trying to look younger than they are.
2: They do not look
1: young. No, they don't. But can we please, can you just keep your voices down, please? So yeah, I don't know what's going on with some of the old people around here. Because it's not a good look. It's creepy. I think natural old age can be sort of beautiful, real. Whereas having strange bloated doll faces is actually frightening. And literally frightening. A couple of them scared the shit out of me coming out of the elevator the other day. Two of them just sort of appeared, hovering in my peripheral vision. Like the gentleman from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I had a jump scare. One minute I was just coming out of the elevator. The next minute, there they were. They were lucky I didn't scream walking dead and try and push them over the balcony. Instead, I recovered and just sort of laughed and held open the elevator door for them. It's a little bit uncomfortable because I think they knew what I was thinking. How could they not? When you give a grown man a jump scare with your face. I don't know what their deal is. I could maybe understand one or two of them trying it. Perhaps getting missold the procedure with some dodgy before and after pictures. But there's more than one or two of them round here in La Jolla. And it's really not a good look. I'd say, um, if you don't know what I'm talking about, the most favourable description I've got for you if... Uh, perhaps you were to squint in low light and you were really, really trying to be nice, you could possibly say they look like mummified cats. At worst, if you wanted to be brutally honest, knowing that the truth can set you free, they look like cannibal killers who are wearing the skins of their victims spread over random jello pouches that they've inexplicably attached to their faces.
0: Do I still look beautiful, Herman?
1: Gracie, you're more beautiful to me than ever.
0: Did the plastic surgery really work, Herman?
1: Gracie, you're a knockout. You're the belle of the ball. You look like a zombie Jack Benny.
0: Oh, Herman, you say the sweetest things.
1: Take my wife, please. She's been gaslit into getting a monster face in a vain attempt to cling to a sliver of (laughs) self-worth. So, what else has been going on? It's mid-November. There's a bit more ocean fog in the mornings and I've been running every day on the beach down to the pier. I'm really starting to get into my stride again. It's been kind of slow, hard going, uh, coming back from being very overweight. And I've been doing this mincing pseudo-jog for a while, Um, but now I'm starting to feel good. I feel like I might be legitimately running and covering ground, which is nice. Beautiful mornings, barefoot running, very lucky. Really beautiful out there. It's the best way to start the day. See dolphins most days. I have, however, been finding um, some tar balls washing up from the Orange County oil spill. And there's, there's patches of it all over the cliffs at Torrey Pines too. I don't know if you've ever seen tar balls from an oil spill. You might have in mind, you know, images from the Exxon Valdez oil spill or um, what was that Obama one in the Gulf? Deep Blue Horizon, something like that. Well, it's not at that level of horror, but it's still very disturbing because you get these tar lumps and they they like vary in size from a quarter up to like five or six inches And as they wash in they are hard and cold from the water temperature but if you don't pick them up right away if they are deposited at high tide up on the rocks and cliffs and the sun hits them um, then later in the day they melt uh, into the sand and on the rocks like really horrible sticky tarmac and it's a nightmare to scrape off so yeah you know that's not been great There's also been a few dead oil covered seabirds washing up as well again you might uh, not have experienced it but it's it's not like exxon valdez it's just, just been a few birds um exactly three to be precise two cormorants and a gull but the shores are supposed to be an ocean preserve andy how is that happening yeah i know it's almost like the ocean is all connected together or something in like one big planet wide ecosystem. <laughs> Still, I'm sure the most powerful people in the planet uh, and the world scientific community will figure out a solution uh, to these kind of things at the big climate conference in Glasgow. What's it called? COP26. Catchy name that. Not at all bland and mind numbingly obscure. Stands for Conference of the Parties 26th Annual Meeting it's a united nations thing i'm not exactly hopeful um doubt they'll be tackling the military industrial complex doubt they'll be mentioning capitalist extremist system driving uh, all the pollution but let's see what now i want some good news for you okay yeah i would like to report from this millionaire's playground here in la jolla that i'm seeing a lot more teslas on the road um the tesla is the uh electric car built by uh billionaire elon musk but uh paid by for us all because his companies have taken 4.9 billion in funding from the government 4.9 billion yeah he's a total a total self-made success story isn't he son of an emerald mine owner from apartheid south africa gets 4.9 billion dollar funding from the government and is now the second richest man on the planet because you know the system we have is designed to consolidate and increase wealth for the rich and wealthy and i find it really hard to conceptualize a billion dollars just what one billion dollars is And you know he has 270 billion of them um I've been thinking a lot about modern monetary theory and defence spending because defence spending is a huge part of the local economy here in San Diego and the military in general. And, you know, economic news is uh, always interesting. It's always funny how they never uh, scaremonger about inflation when they increase the 770000000000 billion so-called defence budget every year. No, that's fine. They just basically just print new money for it. But yeah, just grasping what 1 billion is, is very hard. Because if you were to think about it in terms of time, 1 million seconds is just 11 and a half days. Whereas 1 billion seconds is 31 and a half years. God, just think about that, it's mad, isn't it? Just let that sink in. It's an insane difference. That amount of money is not backed to tangible goods and resources. It's totally arbitrary, invented value. It's a thought experiment in a colonial mindset gone wrong. Musk has two hundred seventy billion. Bezos has, you know, two hundred billion. Guy who owns Comcast, NBC is another one. And we allow them to have this money. You know, the system has awarded it to them, fair and square. But just think what would happen if they decided to uh, use it you know, what what they would do with that amount of money, you know, on the street. I mean, they could, you know, for a fraction of what they have end world hunger. Or, you know, they could just wander around buying all the surplus housing with cash um, and keep the houses empty. (laughs) It's mad. Please look it up. Try and think about it. The system is so broken. I think I'm going to have to listen to some economic podcasts soon. Have some actual experts try and break it down for me but anyway i guess it's good to see more teslas on the roads than hummers for sure so yeah electric cars we have a few but then again too few to mention
0: Tesla Herman, I want to save the planet.
1: Anything for you, Gracie. I'll buy you five of them.
0: Oh, Herman, you do love me.
1: Gracie, I love you like a wildfire consuming the world's last tree.
0: Oh, Herman, you say the sweetest things. I was worried you'd let them put me on an iceberg and float me out into the ocean.
1: Don't worry, Gracie. They can't Frankenstein us. Pretty soon there won't be any icebergs left.
0: Shall I turn the lights out? Yes Gracie, let's turn
1: all the lights out, everywhere, all over the world. Again, I'm sorry. Today, I'm reviewing Hello from the Magic Tavern, a long-running improvised comedy show out of Chicago. This podcast, begun in 2015, tells the story of host Arnie Niekamp and his life after he accidentally fell through a portal and into the land of Foon, a fantasy realm of magic, elves, monsters and butthole-obsessed talking badgers. Arnie fortunately had his podcasting equipment with him when he fell through the portal. And he's been slowly documenting his exploration of Foon in a weekly podcast broadcast back to Earth from a tavern called the Vermilion Minotaur. Most episodes comprised of Arnie engaging in banter with two bar regulars and boon companions, Chunt, a shapeshifter who... ...pretty much stays as a randy-talking badger... ...and Usador, a pompous and incompetent wizard... ...in the mould of uh, Terry Pratchett's Rincewind wind from the Discworld series. New people and creatures uh, of Thune pass through the bar... ...and Arnie and his chums interview them as the uh, core of each show... ...with Arnie trying to discover uh, more and more about this strange world... Um, He's like the fish-out-of-water Arthur Dent in Middle-earth. And uh, the wizard, Usador, is on hand trying to recruit people for his quest to defeat the Dark Lord. And uh, the badger uh, is just there attempting to get laid and have a good time. It's a good fun time at the bar. Arnie explores and tries to understand the world. And the cast come and make fun of him as they build and describe this place week on week. One of the great things about how this show is built is uh, that whenever a guest or one of them says anything about Foon, following the classic improv rule of yes and taken to absurd levels, anything anyone mentions becomes part of the actual lore of the world. So, you know, one of the side gags for long-time listeners is that we get the bonus fun of hearing them scramble around the sometimes ridiculous and hastily made lib universe uh, created on previous episodes. So, for example, uh, when Chunt makes an off-the-cuff joke about elves having three buttholes, from that moment on, all elves on Foon have three buttholes, and if an improvising guest comes on the show and references elves, he may or may not have to account for their anatomy. And yes, it's a writer spoof of uh, fantasy worlds, very much descending from the original satirical spoof of the genre, the 1969 book Board of the Rings. And like that book, the show ridicules the genre with a humour that spans bawdy dick jokes to more subtle and well-developed comedy that is delivered more often than not with perfect timing. So the show is improvised, uh, which means it is unscripted beyond the rules of the world built into the show and certain plot points um, that they've sketched out within you know very loose arcs of their four season run so i guess i should ask what do you know about improv and what do you know about chicago um i'm fortunate enough to have passing acquaintance with uh, both things having lived in the windy city for eight months when i first emigrated here and also in a previous life in the uk i dabbled a bit in performance comedy for a few years so what should you know well Chicago has been this superb incubator of storytelling and performing talent for a good 30, 40 years now. You know, with theatre, drama, music, and comedy. WBZ Chicago, the public radio station, uh, is the birthplace of this American life. And then you've got, you know, Second City, Improv Olympics. And uh, certainly when I was there... um, It was a very affordable place to live uh, and rent in uh, one of its many cool neighbourhoods. And this bred a really vibrant and active art scene. I remember when I moved there uh, that I wrote to people in England that Chicago was like having an Edinburgh Fringe Festival on your doorstep 365 days a year. And within that carnival of arts, across the city's many small independent theatre stages and back rooms and bars. Um, There's also this thriving improv scene. So improv, what is it exactly? Maybe you know it, maybe you don't. You may have come across improv uh, on TV shows like Whose Line Is It Anyway? Um, That's still probably the most widely known uh, cultural example. Um, But that's just one type of improv. That's uh, the stuff that's geared towards quick gags. Elsewhere, I guess you may have seen uh, that particular type attempted at a local comedy show. Um, it's really That's really known as short-form improv. And this is what I mostly saw when I was uh, occasionally doing stand-up in the UK from the late 90s through to the early uh, decade of the noughts. Comedy improvised in the moment. Quick wits trying to mine... Funny material from various types of random input from audience suggestion or, you know, just basic crowd work what's your name, what do you do, that kind of thing. Some comedians would occasionally even go on to build reputations for getting in the flow and doing a lot of improvising on stage, like Robin Williams or doing a Billy Connolly and improvising within their material uh, from setup to punchline. Uh, always a new route between between the start and the end, and finding new laughs and connection within the material. And you know, this to me was what improv was. And sometimes it was mixed up uh, with this artful theatrical tradition of appearing to improvise, which is you know equally wonderful when done well. It's a mixture of earned stagecraft and you know memory for jokes and material and phrasing. Eddie Izzard is a master of the the spur-of-the-moment improvised ad-lib, but, you know, once you see his tour multiple times in a run, the mastery is not so much in the improvisation of material, but in selling of a deeply practised and scripted material as improvised. Equally so, you know, you've got brilliant character comedians like Al Murray's pub Landlord, who effortlessly work an audience in character, while having a pre-written response for every person's name and occupation in the English language. So when I emigrated to Chicago, and I found this amazing art scene. And then I also found this improv scene, which was unlike anything that I'd come across in London, Birmingham or Edinburgh. Um, A much bigger and deeper improv scene that I've seen anywhere since. And within the scene, I discovered that there are cliques and even... um, an industry of improv education that's that's sprung up which i guess sort of pulls from the profitable continuing tool development classes that actors are kind of forced to take uh all the time uh to uh, keep themselves fresh while trying to get roles and so you've got this this scene and naturally the benefits of the scene is there are a lot of places to perform there are more people doing it and it really develops Uh, into something quite brilliant so that's a very quick overview of the scene um just to set the stage to say that this podcast hello from the magic tavern is as superb a product of this fertile chicago improv hop house as you will find because these are performers who have been improvising in this scene together for decades and their chemistry is just excellent they're just a great team. They know how to pass the ball around quickly. They know when to play straight man to set each other up. And the world they are building in the show is you know, very deep and interesting with quick gags echoing out into long-form humour as catchphrases are sowed, re mocked, changed, and then harvested once more. And the guests they get on are also drawing from this deep bench of Chicago talent. Um, So that also keeps things fresh and funny and stops everything from getting stale. Now there is this kind of uh, humor in improv that I'm not the biggest fan of. I call it secondary laughs. They are the laughs that improv comedy uh, get from the mechanics of the improvisation that they set up. They're secondary laughs. They are easily harvested from a willing audience when the audience are sufficiently ca- cajoled into playing along with the arbitrary set of constraints, like, for example, you know, we must perform the entirety of Hamlet in ten minutes while eating a piece of cake every time someone on stage is forsooth, or whatever the uh, reduced Shakespeare Company are doing at the moment. Or kind of like when the performers start playing little games uh with rhymes or puns or they begin to mug to the audience uh that it's struggling to accomplish uh the playing of this game and a slick performer can harvest a laugh and even a round of applause by feigning to flounder but recovering just within the arbitrary constraints of the format the superb live show in Chicago that uh Ran for many years, called "Too Much Light Makes the Baby Go Blind," was an absolute master at this. They just built uh, the goodwill of the audience so well that as soon as you step through the door, um, it almost didn't matter if the you know half the material was weak or the delivery was subpar, because you wanted them to succeed, you wanted them to have a good time, and complete their you know random fifty sketches in an hour. So the Magic Tavern does have its fair share of these secondary improv laughs at play. But even in this, they handle it with such a light touch that you barely recognise it's happening. Um, Their secondary laughs are like, can this new Elvish character who's just shown up in the tavern actually speak Elvish? How far can we push this improv performer with the uh, improv kayfabe that everything is is purely conjured at the moment and not uh, privately rehearsed at all or the product and culmination of extensive performance character work and stagecraft how far can we push this guy to make up the elvish language on the spot and it's fun to be in on the joke to see how uh, the new improviser can possibly wriggle out of such a suddenly intense scrutiny uh, of hastily improvised elvish phrases the show is an absolute pleasure do get on board and enjoy it hello from the magic tavern gets five stars two thumbs up and ibble dibble
2: Number five with one Dibble Ible, calling number four Ible Dibble with two Dibble's. That ah! was the best I've ever done it.
1: Got to be a bit of LARP. Let's see what else. And a Grabthar's Hammer.
0: By Grabthar's Hammer, you shall be avenged.
1: This is Andy's phone. Leave a message. Hey, Andy. Sorry to interrupt the beach, you lucky prick. But since you haven't responded to my emails, I guess I've got to call you. Look, it's Movember, and I'm taking part this year. Raising awareness for men's health issues. Bum cancer and suicide. And I'm growing the mustache. Hoping to get a big fucking handlebar going. And I'm asking for people to sign up and sponsor me for a few bucks every quarter inch or something. I was hoping you'd take a full part and grow a stash with me, but clearly you've got better things to do. But I think the least you can do is support a good cause and chip in. Okay. Movember. Movember. What a joker. You're not gonna get me again, Hedge. No way. Movember. As if. Growing a moustache to highlight the prostate. Come on. Makes no sense. Flannery. I'll give it to you. Flannery was much better. Oh, poor men. I wish we could have a pink race too. Joke. I've grown a moustache. Give me a dollar. I don't know who he thinks I am. I mean, yes, he got me with flannery, but come on. Movember
2: off 3am I don't mind If I live too long I'm afraid I'll die So I- If you are for ten, Memories. It it to me. Strangers on this road, we are all.
1: Thinking we about him has we really spun one. me down memory lane. To Birmingham, Strangers England, late 90s, and into the first decade of the new millennium. You see, If you ask me what was hands down the best improv I've ever seen, then I would have to say it came from that time, and one man, my old friend, Ian McDermott. No, you won't have heard of him, he wasn't exactly famous, local legend for sure amongst the Midlands comedy scene, but not a slick headliner, he was a grafter, in fact he was probably called a new act for an endlessly long time. Doing opening spots at gigs for free for decades. Just for the sheer fun of it. And for the quantity and quality of laughter I experienced watching him. Over the years. And from the memories that I have now. Of him at the Midlands Arts Centre. And on small stages at the back of pubs all over. And then I've got to say, hands down. Of everything I've ever seen. I would have to say the best laugh I ever had was watching him. And yes, I've seen great stuff all over. Professional, big-name comedians of all types and stripes. Been down the Edinburgh Fringe many times. Hen and Chickens in London back in the day. I'm even a little acquainted with Chicago and all those great Harold teams they produce. Yeah, I've probably seen more than my fair share of improv. I've seen nights of glory with everyone smiling, glowing with the moments they've witnessed, laughter echoing off the walls fit to wake the dead, connections and spark of inspiration that cut as deep as any of the best art, Shakespearean in its beautiful reflection of the human condition, and then of course the other times, dull nights, empty rooms, Empty rooms where the eyes of your finest friends and lovers are dodging to the corners of the curtains in embarrassment. Nights of pain, stillborn inspirations, desperate chuckles dragged from bored punters like dead horses. Or worse, the terrifying big crowds loud and obnoxious, drunk and too full of themselves, like trying to perform in a room full of medieval kings screaming for a jester, and also kind of annoyed that you're not famous, and therefore maybe not worthy of their attention or respect, but also unwilling even to give you a chance, and it's fifty-fifty whether you can win them over if you have the balls. And you can intimidate and soothe and spellbind them with a few words. It's a weird alchemy, performance, comedy, but the best improv I've seen, well, that was the stuff from Ian. I'll tell you about it now and maybe when you've heard me you might argue that what I saw wasn't really improv at all. And maybe it was, and maybe it wasn't. But it was still the funniest stuff I've ever seen on the stage. And by funny, I mean really funny. I was literally rolling in the aisles sometimes, out of control. I remember laughing so hard once that my jaw hurt the next day. Mad, crazy, helpless laughter. Rare old times. and in this it was unique, of all the comedy I've seen, my old friend, Ian McDermott from Birmingham. He was a real salt-of-the-earth brummy, and you've probably never met him, and that's sad, as it's truly your loss, but then again, maybe not, because he could be a bit Marmite, and sometimes worse, to some small, troubled type of people, who considered him a sort of village idiot, But he was nothing of the sort. And now that I think about it, I think they only felt like that because he scared them. In that way that some mundane people become unhinged when looking at modern art and being told that what to them is just a combination of paint scribbles is a masterpiece that moves people and is worth millions. I think Ian just unravelled their sense of self and order challenged their operating assumptions and scrambled their pretensions, he was unconventional in a sly sort of way that could appear like a sort of dangerous, contagious idiocy. And the people who woke up at 7 and thought about their stock portfolios and marched in line through their well-ordered lives saying their prayers wanted no part of him. But he was very real. Like Richie Edwards scratching for real into his arm with a razor blade. But obviously nowhere near as grim or depressing. Just a genuine dude. A one-off. And to me, and those who were lucky enough to count him as a friend, he was sort of a wonderful holy fool. At times he could make you feel like you'd fallen into a sitcom or something. You know how Andy Kaufman would do a bit and take it too far until it became uncomfortable. Well, it sometimes could feel uncanny like that with Ian. Like he was doing a bit. All the time, non-stop. And the bit was called Ian McDermott. And sometimes you'd catch a twinkle in his eye and you swear he was a genius. And that you and the whole world were just his straight men. In this surreal routine of his own invention. <laughs> So how to explain Ian to you? Well, let's try this. One of his long-running, I suppose you'd call them routines, was that he could speak French. He was brilliant. He was so totally committed to the idea that he could speak fluent French and read it, that you'd see him wandering around Birmingham city centre, On a weekend, with a rolled-up copy of Le Monde, the French Broad Street newspaper tucked under his arm. I like to know what's going on, he said. I like to get a different perspective on the world. And so you would find him, in the corner of a pub, frowning at the paper, trying to read it, as if undertaking a chess match with a grandmaster, because of course he couldn't read French. What's the news, Ian? Well, the European perspective is bigger he'd say, or some of a wildly vague generalisation. He visited me in Paris once. We had a long weekend going around, seeing the sights, sampling café culture. Everyone he tried to speak to had a different dialect or something, as every communication he attempted crumbled and disintegrated into a farce of mutual bemusement. And yet his committed certainty that he was a fluent French speaker and the only one in the whole of Paris, apparently, was completely untarnished. And if you wanted to settle the matter in plain terms, asserting that it was clear that he could not actually speak French, well then you were just falling into his trap, and he would continue to proclaim his French fluency with a calm, fanatical certainty that would splinter your reason to pieces, like a stone gargoyle flattening a straw hat. I can still remember him now, wandering up to Parisian women in the café and Montmartre and the Marais and he was bulletproof, unsinkable, shockingly, beautifully mad with confidence that he could converse with them on their own turf which of course he couldn't but then he'd be back, joyfully bounding back to the table ''I think she must be Italian or something'' he said ''I couldn't understand a word she was saying'' ''Just what can you do with that?'' ''You just had to enjoy him'' When you were with Ian, it could be like you're in your own little Beckett play, an unknown original. And just when you were starting to think, ah, he's just a clown, he'd do something kind of knowing with a twinkle in his eye that made you think he was crafting it all.
0: Même si un jour, le je deviens comme je le redoute, chanteur pour
2: finissante avec La D'un Argentin de Carcassonne
1: So how to explain Ian's performances the ones that I count as the best belly aching laughs I've ever had. I'll describe his act now and you can decide whether they count as improv or not. Well, first up, he'd take the stage quite timidly. He would come out and announce he was going to do some improv and then try to fish for a couple of audience suggestions. Can you give me a place and an occupation, he would often say. But he'd be so unsure of himself, so awkward, that the audience was cringing for him already, sensing his utter failure and embarrassment, and the feeling would be so acute that he'd even be unwilling to provide him with a minimum of interaction. But he'd persist, and he'd eventually get some suggestions... But then he sort of turned on them, and he wouldn't take the suggestions. Someone would say, reluctantly, London. And he'd say, no, not that, give me another one. Bristol. No, sorry. Rochester. No. Philadelphia. No, can't do that. berry on tweed No. And he'd just keep doing it, and he'd rile them up even more, really piss them off. And they'd go from fearing for his incompetence and embarrassment to an active kind of hostility, and he'd push them, act as if the audience was failing him. A milkman? From Bristol? No. Traffic warden? Bricklayer? No. Done that. Try again. Something else. And he'd keep this going for what felt like a painfully long time, until he would eventually and begrudgingly accept a place and a job, let's say a plumber from the city of York. And then he would pace up and down the stage, telling us, like we were idiots, that he was now beginning the scene. And he would repeat, Plumber from York, under his breath. Plumber from York. Plumber from York. And of course he didn't have anything. He'd seemingly reach into the bag of inspiration, live on stage, and come up with nothing. And then... After another long-feeling couple of minutes, he'd just shrug and bail on it all, and he'd just stand there, sort of waving his arms a bit, maybe in a strange approximation of a plumber from York, a hint of a wrench in a hand movement, a gesture of a plunger, and then he'd say, why I lads, I'm a plumber from York, and it would be in a Geordie accent, which would in itself just push more buttons. We'd all just seen him reject Newcastle and Sunderland, where the accent is from, not two minutes before. From someone begrudgingly forced to provide him with a place name. And then, with the crowd definitely against him. And if the compare hadn't pulled him forcibly off the stage by that point, you might be in for a real treat. And he might go into one of his classic standbys, like the Gibraltar Monkeys bit, or Woody Allen searching for Osama bin Laden. The Gibraltar Monkeys was one I particularly liked, for in this bit he would attempt to improvise an interview between himself as a TV news journalist and a monkey on the Rock of Gibraltar about whether or not they felt more British or Spanish. It was watching the way he would hunch over, on stage, doing the monkey response, barking out vaguely Spanish sounding words that made me lose my shit more than once. You see the best way to see and appreciate this performance was side on. You weren't just watching Ian, you were watching Ian attempt solo improv, while watching the audience getting angry and bemused and attempting to understand ian doing solo improv the looks on their little audience faces as the social pact as an audience member was totally obliterated before their eyes watching all their expressions of confusion becoming active hostile bemusement and then sometimes barely contained teeth-clenching rage was just sublime It was as if his improv was insulting their very being. It was too much. I think now that he was just way ahead of his time. We watch Borat or Eric Andre today do stuff to innocent punters, street pranks and the like and understand that we enjoy the spectacle of their outlandish humiliation and the upheaval of social expectation as a performance piece. This has made their names and built their careers. Ian was doing this naturally ten, fifteen years ahead of them, without even knowing what he was doing. Sometimes there would be a bunch of us comedians sitting side-on, enjoying the Ian gig, watching the performer and the audience, and mainlining his mad and brilliant chaos, and it was sort of an extreme catharsis for us, a magnus opus of failure seeing all your worst fears a performer looking for laughs come true for our friend and we would all be laughing so hard in the wings and on the stairs that sometimes we would turn the audience the mirth and joy would spread from us and then they too would start laughing and he would somehow, impossibly, absolutely kill it the social group therapy of laughter kicking in filling the room the best medicine
2: to peace we find tell you what I'll do all the things I own I will share with you and if I feel tomorrow like I feel today We'll take what we want and get the rest away Strangers on this road, we are home We are not two, we are one
1: Sadly, he's not still with us. He died. Heart attack 2009 later found out he'd had a lot of stress put on him at work and that was added to by an evil woman who was trying to make him do things that were not legal You can't bumble around being silly and trying to yes-and your way out of some situations and relationships
2: Holy man, and holy priest This is love of life, makes me weak at my knees so when we get there make your plea. Cause soon I feel gonna carry us away.
1: but he also didn't look after himself He'd be the last at the pub Good lad always up for a curry I once left him in one Balti house early one evening and found him in another one several hours later at 2 a.m. after some other show It was our lives then, at the time. And honestly, who can resist a curry? Especially in Birmingham. But for those of us who saw him perform, he'll always be up there. A myth, a legend. Improv beyond improv, comedy beyond failure, dismantler of the fourth wall, crafter of funnier moments than anyone I've ever seen. Ian McDermott. Rest in peace, mate. Whenever I think of improv, I think of you and I start laughing
2: Strangers on this road we are home. We are not two we are one Strangers on this road we are home. We are not two we are one
1: That's a wrap. Thanks for listening. Please share the show and help me to get a few more listeners. And if you really want to help out, buy me a coffee by clicking the link. The Jazz is provided by Mario Roms Interzone. I don't know who's providing your jazz, but I think you should switch to these cats. Andy's Podcaster Podcasting Podcast is sponsored by the American Shoe Council, celebrating over 40,000 years of bipedal history. Shoes, it's how you protect your feet. Take it easy. Hope you're getting those booster shots. <laughs> We've got to get out of this COVID stuff. Oh, my God. I hope you're well. Happy holidays.
2: <laughs> ba, 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 ba.